Hey folks, this is Dakota Corn here. And before we jump into the podcast with Mark Shepard, I want to let you know about uh, an event that we've got coming up that I'm really excited about. So as you may know, uh, my colleagues, uh, Rob and Michelle Avis, and I have been writing a book for the last couple of years. And that book is about to be released towards the end of April. And to help us kind of celebrate the, uh, the launch of this book, we're also organizing an online summit with permaculture experts from all around the world. So we've got folks like Jeff Lawton, uh, Peter Bain, Starhawk, Ben Falk, Richard Perkins, Morag Gamble, Mark Shepard, uh, Stefan Subkowiak, uh, Rosemary Morrow. Uh, we're even having a, uh, a live uh, concert uh, on the first night with the Formidable Vegetable Sound System. Uh, and I've, we've also got Jack Spierko uh, and, and many others. And so basically the, the idea is uh, to help us kind of launch the, the our book, Building a Permaculture Property, we thought wouldn't it be awesome if we got uh, kind of all these you know amazing people from all around the world to help share their kind of case studies uh, about about their successes and their um, you know failures as they built their permaculture properties. So essentially, we've got three days of April twenty third, twenty fourth, twenty fifth, all day long, back to back to back, where we're going to be um, hearing. Uh, from all these amazing presenters about how they built their permaculture properties. Uh, there's going to be live Q&A. We've got uh, amazing door prizes from some, some of our incredible uh, sponsors. Uh, the main one being uh, New Society Publishers, which was the, uh, the folks that we've been working with uh, on our new book. And so if you're uh, at all interested in, um, in, in checking out this event, or in, 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 in getting a copy of our, of our new book, you can head over to mypermacultureproperty.com. And, uh, and you can you know, find out more information about the event. You can also register to receive uh, updates about you know, the, the schedule and, and when the, the presenters are gonna be uh, joining us to share their stories. Uh, now, if, if you're hearing this after the fact, uh, don't worry because this whole thing is being recorded and we're actually putting together uh, an amazing uh, book bundle that's going to include uh, basically our book as well as you know lifetime access to all these recordings and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, regardless of, of whether you're, you're listening to this before April 23rd, 24th, and 25th, uh, 2021, or afterwards, if you're at all interested in this kind of stuff, be sure to head over to mypermacultureproperty.com and check out the, the details for this event. Now, uh, without any further ado, we're going to jump into the podcast with Mark Shepard. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I do just want to give you guys a heads up. Uh, there were some audio issues uh, with this particular um, podcast. I don't know what happened. It, it seems like there was something on the uh, the recording side where the... the um, the volume of our voices was going up and down, uh, so I did my best to try to even that out and uh, and stop any you know really loud stuff or really quiet stuff. But uh, I do apologize if uh, if I blow out anybody's eardrums. So, um, but this is was a uh, one of my favorite conversations I've I've had on the podcast thus far. So, um, you know, you might have to adjust the volume a couple times, but it's going to be absolutely worth it. So. I hope you enjoy the, the conversation that Mark and I had, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Take care. Bye. Hi, folks. This is Dakota Cohen here, and we're back for another episode of the Building a Permaculture Property podcast. And I'm absolutely thrilled to have one of my favorite guys in permaculture on the show here, <laughs> as uh, Mark Shepard. And uh, um, the I first got introduced to Mark Shepard, actually, uh, Kind of serendipitously, it was right after I'd taken my first permaculture design course, 
Uh, I remember I was totally disenchanted with, um, with organic agriculture. My parents had been doing it for 30 years. We had been slowly basically running out of money in topsoil using that particular um, uh, system. And, uh, uh, and so I, I, I knew I wanted to come back to the farm, but, but organic wasn't working. And so I was typing in, you know, alternative agricultural solutions. Permaculture came up, it, something clicked. It just, it made absolute sense. I just went online, found like the first permaculture course that was advertised. It was in BC at some kind of <laughs> a hippie commune uh, out in, in the middle of uh, British Columbia. Uh, I went there for two weeks. I was uh, one of two people in the course. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, it was like, it was the, a very small course. I don't know how I didn't find anything better, but it, um, so I was there for two weeks. And you know, it was a there was a you know a, a, a vegan place. We ate basically rice and beans for two weeks. Uh, my the the teacher was she was you know really really great lady. All the people were fantastic, really nice people. But having grown up on a farm, and like and reading some of the early stuff about permaculture, I thought this is like this is you know permanent agriculture. And after spending two weeks at this you know basically gardening on steroids type little tips and tricks thing, I was totally disenfranchised about. Uh, what permaculture was and whether it was going to actually help our farm and I came home and I was like going through kind of a, a depression I got like sick I got a I was had a flu and um, I was literally like bedridden for two or three days just you know YouTube binging and I watched uh, the, I think it was your permaculture voices um, oh, one of the cool. first vid videos you did and like somebody had like somebody had like just I don't know if, if it was done uh, against your uh, your will or not, but it, they, they just took your slides and there was no no picture of you. I didn't even know what you were looked like. It was just voiceover on top of slides. Oh, that and was I, an acres. That was an acres. That was US. acres. Okay. Yeah. So I I watched that and it changed my life, like wow. hands down. That's what got me. It's like this is this is what I, I knew permaculture could be, and here was this guy you know in a very similar climate to me. Again, it wasn't somebody from Australia or growing bananas or you know, mangas or mangoes or whatever. So you were, you were kind of local to our area. You were, you know, large scale, you, had, you know, uh, over hundred acres. And uh, I, I watched your presentation like three or four times <laughs> in a row. I made everybody around me watch it. And that's what got me back into permaculture. And then I, I started diving deep into, you know, what Bill had originally said and, and watching his original stuff. So, um, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that uh, everybody already knows who's on this podcast already knows who you are. So I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to waste time with that because you're a busy guy. Um, but for folks, I guess, for quickly, <laughs> so for, for folks who don't just like the Coles notes, uh, Mark Shepard, he's a, a, a farmer, a permaculture farmer, homesteader. Uh, he's the author of, of several books. The, the, uh, the first I believe was um, restoration agriculture, uh, which was basically real world permaculture for farmers, which is exactly what the world needs. And uh, your latest book is uh, Water for Any Farm, which I hopefully we'll talk mostly about that because um, I know you've done a lot of other podcasts and stuff about uh, your, your first book there. But kind of a, the just to jump into it with you right now, I, I'd like to get your take on why is it that permaculture seems to have been hijacked from permanent agriculture to gardening on steroids? Um, I think in part was because the uh, original adopters and, and even, even Bill Mollison is not immune from some of this, uh, is their worldview 
uh, and, and where they actually lived at the time, the people who got excited about this were ripe for some kind of change. And if you know anything about a farmer, you're working on a shoestring budget. You're not really thinking we're going to change absolutely everything all at once. You know, that's not your first thought. But yeah. There are other people in suburban situations that they, they see all of the writings on all the different walls and they are, they're ready for change. So the first adopters were, uh, were what I call the original hippie class, like the, like the 60, early 70s, um, 1960s, 1970s kind of crowd. And they gave it their flavor. And this is the part that Bill Mollison was even a, a, a subject to, I was gonna say a victim, but subject to was on the economics side of thing. Uh, that whole hippie generation, and I grew up like as a you know, seven to 10 year old kid during that whole era uh, when that was all going on, uh, that um, capitalism was actually horrible evil foisted upon the universe um, in, and had to be just thrown out, every, absolutely everything thrown out, a new system to replace it. So on the whole economics thing, even Bill Mollison missed the boat. He missed his own advice in that we're supposed to observe nature, natural systems, observe the system conditions. What are they? Now design a system that captures whatever the energy resource is, you know, spreads it or moves it to where we want it, focus it in a particular place and create an abundant, uh, resilient, anti-fragile perennial system that that survives that whatever the flaws might be in the system so instead of following that protocol himself he's like throw it all baby out with the bathwater bath water. instead of saying hey wait here are some ways because we all exist within the world economy the way it is right now we have to figure out how to use these tools that are at our disposal to create systems that will outlast that yeah if we use the current economic system to set up systems that are ecologically resilient and regenerate through time, we can, uh, if, if the economic system goes sideways on us at any point in time, the ecological system does not. And that's, I think, where capitalism comes from in the first place. You plant a tree, the sun shines, it rains, you got some mineralization going on in the soil, the tree grows and it adds a net increment to itself every single year. Now, you're not necessarily in the same biome where I kind of got all of my, my educational training, but in the humid eastern part of the continent, if you plant a field full of, of white pine, eastern white pine, for example, uh, on average, on an average site, you'll, you'll gain about 7% per year. This, this plant gets that much bigger every single year. That's natural capitalism based on the sun, the wind, the rain, the soil as it is on the site, even if it's not any soil. Uh, and that system will survive whatever that place can throw at it. It can, it can survive fire, it can survive drought, it can survive ice storm, it can survive mastodons knocking it over, bison trampling all over everything, and it sprouts back and continues. That is a regenerative system. It's naturally derived. And if we individually change our economics so that we can fit within that system. Now we're just like tweaking a system. It's going in the direction that it wants to go in. And we're benefiting from some of this natural surplus yield that's produced by our site. That makes sense? And, and I, I, so, I mean, just to, to clarify your thoughts here is, is the, the people that kind of uh, f first grabbed onto Bill's, you know, genius, which was, you know, biomimicry essentially, 
and um, the, the, there at, at that time, you know, there was a lot of um, you know concerns about you know, the, some of the symptoms of of what people assumed were, was capitalism, and a lot of those people tended to be be city folks, and it kind of just got viewed off in that direction. Um, and and so that this is I didn't expect we'd break into into capitalism right away, but uh, <laughs> are you a, are you a fellow uh, Anne Rand? Um, uh, have you followed any of her her stuff or Ayn Rand? Let's not go into that because <laughs> I'm going to um, um, actually by my thinking, my approach, and my philosophy. It's all about ecology and ecological systems. Yes. Everything else is a subset of that. Yes. And and all these different economists and uh, politicians from this side to that side doesn't matter who you are, where you're at. You're all a subset of the ecology of this planet, yeah. and no, no one of them has a whole picture of how the whole thing works. And so, all of them have some of the truth, and none of them have all the truth. That's my perspective on that, yeah. and that's a way for also for me to stay out of uh, hot water with people because there are some people that are totally this, they're totally that, and when I'm there, I have to speak their language to help them yes. in their direction to come into line with ecological realities. But back to, the, um, back to the first adopters thing, if you can also imagine yourself in a suburban uh, environment, um, you are totally captured within a, a, a world that's been pixelated and the whole Western uh, scientific reductionist worldview is that there's this one thing that solves everything. And then what is this one thing? And plus you're looking around, you got a quarter acre lot what can you do? You plant a couple of seeds in a bucket. That's where you start. Well, then, because you're surrounded by nothing but the man-made world, these are what your inspirations are. And these really cool little ideas like the 16 brick rocket stove and the mud oven and, you know, growing pipes and strawberries and lettuce in the pipes. It's like, that is all, those are all little trinkets. They're sparkly little things that the crow keeps going after. That's not the big picture. Yeah. So, so permaculture got colored by the first adopters, their economic worldview, and their, their interpretation of Bill Mollison's line to make small and incremental changes yes. instead of big ones. Yes. And they, they took that as a, a dictate saying that permaculture has to be small. Yes. It's like, no, 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 you go reread it again. Yes. Small incremental changes. And here's a small incremental change I would like to do on every single acre of land in the corn and soybean belt of the United States of America. One small change I would like to make is to start every one of those acres on the path towards returning to the oak savanna biome that it was before Europeans came in and, and plowed it all up. It's one small change, but it covers hundreds of millions of acres. Yes. That, that is, is make small incremental changes, but because they are small, they figured everything's gotta be small. I live in a small place. It's gotta be small, it's permaculture, small, it's all small. And so anybody who tries to apply small thinking and, and you grow a fair amount of produce, is that true or no? For ourselves, most our, okay, our, our right. farming business is based around proteins. The, uh, yeah, okay, right. Yeah, so the, the vegetable grower, I'll use that word a grower, and a person who sells their vegetables, whether they're CSA, market gardener, or wholesale, if you are, you wake up in the morning and you grab a hoe or a, you know, some kind of hand tool 
you are a gardener. Yeah. And so what happened is the permaculturists living in little suburban landscapes reached for a hoe in the morning or a rake, they're gardeners. So their interpretation of permaculture was gardening. So it's now landscape gardening on steroids. But if, if you try to do like me, at one point in time, I was doing 12 acres of produce. Yeah. Well, where are all my volunteers? Where's my work day? Where are my interns? Where are all my you know, paid help and all that kind of stuff? No, it's just me, me. It's pretty easy because my first tool wasn't a hoe. My first tool is get that tractor started, which didn't always cooperate with me, but because <laughs> once, you, once you get that scale, now things are easy. I, so many market gardeners I go, to, I go to help and do a consultation with, you know, they're looking at this one acre of ground like, oh, how do you keep up with it? It's like, get a tool that actually handles an acre. I get an acre done before noon. What's your problem? You know, yeah. so you're just bragging, you arrogant snot. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm just using a different tool. <laughs> That's it's funny you say that because I, I remember um, like when I was when I was first got into permaculture and I was so excited about you know, after I got through my depression and kind of found you know, your stuff and, and went back to read, you know, Bill's original stuff and realized that his, his whole intention was, as you said, to start small, you know, around your house, make small mistakes, learn there, but then to scale it up and eventually to, to transform agriculture into um, something that was, that was perennial and permanent. And so I was just like, oh man, this is amazing. And I was, I would, I would share, you know, videos and stuff on, you know, various social media about some of the stuff that we were doing because I was, you know, out in the middle of the boonies in you know, basically <clears throat> the industrial agricultural wasteland. There was nobody, no community. And I would just get absolute vitriol and like slam about like, oh, you have tractors, you're not doing permaculture. You're, you, know, you know, you're using a bulldozer. That's, that's not permaculture. And like just vicious attacks. And it's like, there's literally a chapter in the book, <laughs> the permaculture designer's manual called, you know, earthworks. Yeah. And it's all about, but it's, so it's, it's really interesting how, um, but I, I like your take on that is that, that, you know, people who they, they, they wanted to start small and, and, and make incremental changes, but people kind of got stuck there because it's easy and then mixed in with all the other, you know, stuff in the cities and, and the economic pressures on farmers and how difficult it is for them to, to make any kind of change, no matter how small, because they're literally stuck on these debt cycles and everything else. And what, what relates to all of that too, the start small and get and get bigger, that goes back to Bill Mollison and his situation is he also wasn't a farmer farmer by trade, you know? Yeah. And so things that he wrote about, he wasn't able to verify through experience before the permaculture designers manual came out. And the one that you just explained was perfect. We'll learn about all these little things by doing small changes around your homestead. And then, and then Mollison called it rolling permaculture. You do this plot first and you do that one, then that one, then that one, then that one, and pretty soon you got the whole thing covered. Well, that makes a lot of sense and it seems easy to do, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna use my fingers if, if I can, because well, yeah. the video will show up, right? Yeah. yeah. So if you got, this is, you know, 50 hectare, okay, 10 each. If we start with, with this, well, it's even smaller than that. Let's say we start with this, right? This year we go out, we design the system, we plant the system, we maintain the system, and the early three years of getting a perennial system in place are the most critical. You've got to be there to keep things alive when they need to be alive. Then once they're there, they're settled in, they're growing, they'll be okay. Yeah. So here <clears throat> we've got all our regular farming that's taken place over here. And now we take time out and we make an, an investment 
uh, that seems small, it seems affordable, it seems doable. So now we're planting, maintaining, you know, any irrigating, weed control, whatever. Well, now year two, we got to do planting and maintaining and maintaining. Now we go planting, maintaining, maintaining, <laughs> then planting, maintaining, 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 planting, maintaining, maintaining, maintaining. Now we're five years in and these finally start to produce. Yeah. So we now we've kind of pushed out all of our other agriculture. We've made our cash flow, you know, get smaller. Uh, and now we go to harvest a yield off of this and it's not worth the effort to go do it. You go pick a hundred foot row of hazelnuts and you get two cups worth of nuts. Good for you. What you want to do is you do the whole damn thing all at once. Now, oh, but that's big. It's like, no, it's not. Because the first thing we did is we observed what are the natural plant community types of this place, the stuff that's grown in the ditch all by itself. Let's imitate that, design our system, set it up in rows, horrors, rows. Well, the rows now are going to help steer the water where we want the water. This is part of the design. And now we got three years of maintenance. Yeah. We're crazy ass maintenance and we're going to take care of that. And then when our yields kick in by year five, I'm just picking a number arbitrarily. All of a sudden it's worth the effort. Now that, that is how you make that transition across. And the, the agroforestry techniques of alley cropping, planting rows of trees on site of currently existing cash flow fields, whether you're doing livestock or produce or corn and beans, you know, canola, um, that's a great way to do it because while taking care of your canola, you're taking care of your trees. While taking care of your cattle, you're taking care of your trees. Yeah, so that's another issue that happened early on just because Mollison didn't know. He didn't, he wasn't a farmer. Totally. And um, although, the, like, I don't know if he wrote this after the, after he wrote the designer's manual, but there's another great blog that he wrote, or I guess it wouldn't be a blog, an article called, <clears throat> about, um, uh, it's like four years to abundance or something, or the, the four stages of abundance. And, and that's essentially what he, he recommended is like you start out doing, you know, observing and doing like variety trials on a small scale. And then you, by, by kind of year, year, you know, two or three, you figure out which ones are going to work. Um, and then, and then on year, you know, uh, I think it's year three, you basically scale up and you plant it all out because you, you know, you've made mistakes in the small scale and, and you've had those observations and then you, you scale up. Um, and, and that's essentially what, well, I, I did it kind of backwards because I, I went too big. I went too big too fast, and and also I I I I was basing a lot of my observations on what other people were doing, <laughs> not not what I was doing. I was taking people's you know prescriptions and trying to you know put those on my farm. And turns out there's a lot of side effects when you follow somebody else's prescription. Right. And um, but eventually you know you know, after, after kind of five years, that's when I started to figure, figure shit out. And, um, and yeah, we've, we've got, um, uh, the, the whole farm is basically is designed out with, with this kind of alley cropping system. And, and, uh, um, yeah. And, and like you said, now, now it's worthwhile to go out and pick, you know, those, those fruit or, or those apples. Yeah. And that's um, actually I, I mentioned it in the banter before we started recording too. What I appreciate most about, you know, reading your book and seeing your work is the fact that you've actually lived through this process. Mm -hmm. You actually do this on a day-to-day -day basis and you're not afraid to discuss the things that you did that didn't really work all that well, um, which, is, which does take a little bit of personal courage because you have to be vulnerable. And if you're not comfortable 
with who you are and what you're currently doing, that vulnerability can be scary for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, it, it's a vicious cycle because like, if people don't talk about their failures, then the people who are trying to get into it think, oh, well, like, like, if you make a failure or you know, something doesn't work, oh, I must have done something wrong. Versus if, if we all kind of start sharing the, the big, like I've, I've made $20,000 mistakes right. uh, easily in, in like a single day. Um, How about... I've made $20,000 investments that never really paid themselves back. That's right. Well, the, the, way, the way that I look at it is, is, you know, most people spend, you know, about $40,000 on to go to university. I didn't go to university. And so that was my school of hard knocks tuition. <laughs> oh, that's all right. That's a good way to put it. Whereas yeah. I, have, I have probably $100,000 worth of machines that I invented in order to do post-harvest handling on various different things yeah. that what I learned by making that investment caused me to make the next investment that made the first one obsolete. So yeah. I've got a, I've got a shed full of obsolete equipment that, you know, I helped to make obsolete. It's like, <laughs> it would have been nice if someone else was doing this and made all those investments for me, but <laughs> had to learn what I had to learn. Totally. <clears throat> okay. So that now that we've uh, kind of given both uh, our, our critiques of, of, uh, <laughs> of permaculture and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a fantastic system. And actually, this is something that we talked about uh, before we got up, started recording is um, just dogma. Like, at the end of the day, like th this is, I think, the, the biggest problem in, in every you know, field I've, I've studied and it is just, um, you know, the, the, the unwillingness to observe and interact and, and to get feedback for, for when you're doing something that it doesn't make sense. And, um, and like gardening is absolutely essential for, for, you know, the, the world that we need to move towards, but that's, there's, that's not everything. And, well, and I'm still waiting for anyone, somebody, somewhere, anywhere, show me anybody, anyone or any family that can grow all of their own food on a suburban lot. Just show me that person because yeah. until that happens, there is no proof of concept. No. So the proof of concept is you can grow a tremendous amount of things and why not in that situation, in the urban situation, let's grow the supercharged, uh, hyper-mineralized vitamins and minerals and roughage that, that is so easy to get in a small scale intensive system like that. And let's get the carbohydrates, proteins, and oils yeah. from perennial systems like, like ours. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and, at scale. That's called a farm. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, absolutely. And and that that was your um, like, you know, that was your kind of core thesis of of restoration agriculture, um, is that you know to in order for us to continue civilization, we need to have a regenerative way of producing the you know the carbohydrates, fats, and and oils, um, and and proteins that that we need to live because we can't just live on vegetables. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so that I'd like to I'd like to transition now into your your newest book, Water for Any Farm, and um, and and start to talk about that because I, I've uh, I've read both your books and the, um, uh, you know the the first one was was great. It was uh, but it was it was more of a uh, you know an, an introductory an introductory level like you know any consumer could pick that book up and they could get it. Right. Um, but th this water for any farm, and from what I understand, your plan is to write a series of very detail-oriented 
right. kind of manuals, technical manuals on um, specific aspects of how do you actually do this restoration agriculture that's geared towards you know, farmers. Um, and the first one being water. So uh, I guess- I'll, now I'll, interrupt, I'll interrupt here. Okay. That, that you, you got that correct, is that restoration agriculture is the big overview. This is permaculture design. We're going from the pattern down to the details. Yeah. Well, within restoration agriculture, there's a, a certain order of operations, the things that are more important to get done first. Yes. So, so water was the first one. So restoration agriculture as a whole actually is six or more other mini books that fit within it. And as you've read, it's not mini. Yeah. So the water book that you got um, <clears throat> that originally came out to be twice as big as that. And publisher kind of at the time said, well, you know what? There's a lot of material in here that if we included it in this book, uh, the people who aren't technically minded will just get turned off and put it down. Mm. And it'll be no different than Yeoman's book. So let's have the narrative and the pictures in one book and have the technical uh, uh, data and information in the next. Mm. So the third one in waiting is the engineering and technical manual um, that hasn't been published yet, but it's supposed to be as of December, it was supposed to be published, but you know what happened this past year. It's been yeah, yeah. Everything got pushed back. So we got that correct as far as how it's laid out. Anybody can pick up restoration agriculture. You really have to be serious about wanting to manage the rainfall or irrigation that comes to your property in order to uh, get into a water for any farm. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and so, I, I, like, first off, I guess with, with this book, Water for Any Farm, um, we kind of already answered this, but I'll, I'll kind of ask a leading question because <laughs> I think I know where you're going to go with it. Um, Cause th there's, there's another, there's another book called water for every farm. And so why, why did you write this book? If there's already a book called water for every farm, that's very similar to you, Mark. Water for every farm. Australian PA Yeomans. And uh, he was in Australia at the time. He's like a mining engineer. So he knew equipment. He knew how water moves and stuff like that. And um, he described a very simple methodology and a very simple pattern uh, that works in Australia. And I'm not going to get too far into the weeds as to what that pattern is. Uh, but um, one of the things with Yeomans is that he was developing this, this simple, you know, wrote system you do this you do this you do this you do this and everything's fine he was doing it on the geographically simplest the topographically simplest continent on the planet and it doesn't mean people are simpletons or anything like that it's not a denigration it's just a it's an observable phenomena if you've got a stream i'm going to use my fingers here running down this way <clears throat> that's a, the first water that starts to flow whether it's seasonal or perennial that's a first order stream. Yeah. You've got two first order streams that come together. This is a second order stream. If you have uh, another first order stream that joins this, this is still a second order stream. But if you have two second order streams to come together, the one that runs down the middle is a third order stream. Well, Australia is the topographically simplest continent, it has no river system that is more complex than a third order stream. So the very simple pattern, the very simple formula that Yeomans de devised in Australia, if you take it out here to where I live, um, I'm on the Mississippi River drainage, which happens to be the hydrologically most complex 
river system on the planet. It's not the biggest by any stretch of the imagination, but I, it's either a 10th or 11th order stream where I stand right here. And this is nuts. I mean, that, so what, what, what the simple formula in water for uh, Yeoman's book, <laughs> for, for in Yeoman's book, this simple pattern is like one plus two equals three. One plus two equals three everywhere around the world, correct. But one plus two equals three does not describe my landform. You know, you, you, can't, you can't do it. One plus two equals three, that's great, but it doesn't work here. We need, we need more advanced calculus in order to do this. That said, there still is a simple pattern and a simple pathway that you can go through. And by going through a simple uh, pattern and an adaptive, take an adaptive strategy, all of a sudden the complexity goes off the chart, but it's still simple. All we have to work with when we're moving water is we either make a level ditch or a level hole in the ground. And what, what does the water level do? It stays level, right? But if we lower one side of it, where does the water go? That way. If we lower the other side, where does water go? That way. So already we just introduced three levels of complexity. Well, this computer that we're talking over only works on two, on or off. So if you got on or off and we can talk on computers like this, what if we have three? Oh my gosh, she just goes off the charts. The complexity you can come up with, but it's simple. Level, tilted this way, tilted that way. Then you start combining them. And, and you can design and you can move water uh, amazing ways and you can store water in amazing places that people don't even think of. Uh, absolutely. And, and so then there's, there's one kind of quote I want to read from your book. And I, be, so that I, I, I listened to your book on, on audio or audible. Oh, because, the water book? pardon? The water book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, both, both actually. Okay, because with the water book, there's so many diagrams in it. You really, really should get the hardcover because you can see the pictures. Definitely. And, and I, I'm, I'm planning on, but even with, I, I, I know I, I saw you at a, we were at a conference, uh, was it a month ago or something for together? And I heard you give your, your presentation and, and you did mention that. And that's where I first heard about your book. But I figured, well, I'll go and get the audiobook first. <laughs> I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe how much I got out of it, even without the drawings, just based on you know the little bit of background information that I I know about um, uh, you know Pierre Yeoman's you know, keyline system. But for sure, it, it will be helpful. But the the most, um, I think the the biggest quote from the book, and I actually I don't know if this is your quote or Pierre Yeoman's. This is the problem with uh, audiobooks: is it's hard to tell. Oh, yeah when somebody's <laughs> quoting or not. But um, it, it was, uh, it was the, the quote is this. So that you're, you're talking about the, the master line within the system and, it's, and so you, you define it as like, it's a sweet spot in the, landscape, in the landscape where there's a line on every property from which that property's relationship to water can be optimized. Right, and that's the paraphrase of okay. what he said. Yeah. And, and so what, when I heard that, that one line, I was like, that's it. That's, that's all key. Line. It was like the most, the simplest definition of key line I'd ever heard is like, there's a line on every property from which that property's relationship to water can be optimized. And, and the reason why and that line oh, go ahead. might not be, that line might not be a key line according yes. to Yeoman's definition. Exactly. And, and that, that was the, that was the critical point because I've, I've, I know about all the key lines and how to find the inflection points in the landscape. But the problem is, you know, if I were to design my farm based on PA Yeoman system, it wouldn't work or like it would, it would not be optimized. Right. 
um, because, because most of my water comes through a valley that's not on my farm. And so I have to, I want to pick that up and, and take it sideways, you know, based on my own goals and context. But the, the way that you, you paraphrased Yeomans there was just like, that's, that's exactly what it is. That was the core principle and that will work everywhere. And, and the reason why picking one line is really important is because you know, all of our equipment and stuff works in a, in a rectilinear um, format, meaning like we like to go side by side at, at set widths. And if you pick one line or, or the fewer lines, the better, because on my farm, I, I, have, I have three different lines, three different swales that I use. And so there, there, there is a bit of kind of odd stuff in the middle, but you know, based on my own context, I've made that decision that that's the best way to optimize water on my property. But the, I'll read it again here because it's like the sweet spot for, or the master line or the key line is, is there's a line on every property from which that property's relationship to water can be optimized. And yeah, that, that, that really did it for me. And, and leave the word key line out of that because yeah. it might not be the key line. Yes. You know, if you look at my hand here, you'll see that this is a, this is a main ridge. These are hills and saddles, hills and saddles. This is a, a primary ridge, a primary valley. Two primary valleys come together and there's a main valley. Well, in, in key line design, you find a key point. Yeah. You make a, a contour line from that key point. That's a key line. Yes. Well, it just so happens that on my hand, if I had a key line here, make everything go parallel down in the valleys, have all your equipment passes parallel up on the ridges, the water will migrate from high in the valleys to low on the ridges. It works great. Um, and the different ponds are linked yeah. um, through the landscape. This can gravity feed that, gravity feed that, and so on. However, <laughs> not all land is shaped that simply because you'll have, you'll have extra little hills going down the ridge. You'll have extra divots. There's, there's valleys that, uh, I think it was like six different uh, key points in the valley that all met the definition of, of key line and key point. It's like, let's just... Let's just leave that out of the conversation for a bit. Yeah. Let's manage the water on our farms using channels and mounds. USDA calls it terraces, swales and berms and key line talk. I don't care what you call it. You can make a channel. You don't need a mound. Then you call it a canal or a ditch. We're going to move water where we want to move it. And it's rather relatively simple to keep it safe. And then we store it where it is, is most uh, convenient and it accomplishes our goals and our objectives and it's adjustable. And if we don't like it, what it's doing today, we adjust the bottom of our channel to move the water in a different location five years down the line or 10 years down the line. It's infinitely adjustable and adaptable to any property anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's where it's like the, the key word in that, in your definition is, is optimized. And so it's like, okay, what, what are you trying to optimize for? Um, no, it's, that's, that's, that's a question right there because that's important because that's all goals and yeah. those are values and that comes first. I'm not going to design a grazing property for, for vegans who want to eat, you know, beans. That's, that's just out of the question. So it's yeah. going to be a different system for them than it is for you. Who's going to be watering livestock. Yeah. And so again, I, I want to, I want to stress this because uh, this is, this is probably one of the, the largest problems within permaculture and, and I think our, you know, a, a lot of other domains as well is, is this, this, um, this reliance on dogma or, or prescriptions or recipes and other people just get stuck into following those things. Um, but, and, but like I said before, when you, when you, when you take a prescription, there can be side effects, they can be nasty. And so at the end of the day, 
the and you and I are on the same page here is, is the goal is to you know teach people principles and and um, and hopefully some kind of a process that they can make their own recipe for themselves in a way that's that's optimized for their goals it's adaptive all those other things and for for, for as as um, you know for a, a lot of all the other things that permaculture got right and it's you know based on biomimicry and, and natural ecosystems there seems to have been that ability to have an adaptive system uh, in terms of adaptive compared to other people's properties, but also adaptive on the same property throughout time as the property changes. Um, and uh, I guess to be fair, I think Bill got that, but a lot of other people missed that. And it's, it can't be stressed enough that, that, you know, don't just find a guru and mimic what they're doing because it will not work. Well, cause that, that also relates. You know, well, you know, you, you mentioned <laughs> on, on that side of thing, you know, the, the not the prescription but the pattern of the process yeah it's similar in a different realm to like the difference between myth and fact mm. myths may actually have truths within them and these are truths to live by we can learn lessons from them but they might not be factual mm. yes. now what we do is we take what we learn from this these myths or these culture stories and all all world traditions all cultures have their own culture stories that were the lessons on how to teach us how to live. Well, now that we're at this new place, let's take those lessons, but they get applied differently. Mm -hmm. We're not in the same situation that our ancestors were in. It's radically different. So let's use the truths that transcend time to live our lives today. That's what's a similar parallel going on Absolutely. between those. Absolutely. It's like Wendell Berry has this great quote, um, facts are just information without context. <laughs> Go love Wendell. All right. <laughs> uh, okay, so coming back to um, Water for Any Farm, um, the uh, one thing that I um, uh, I, I want to kind of focus on a bit is because I think is this is probably one of the the most valuable pieces uh, from from the keyline system that apart from Darren Doherty. Uh, I don't know a lot of other people that talk about it that much. I guess um, Richard Perkins, he, he hits on a lot, is the, the, the scale of permanence. And for me, it's like, that was like the biggest thing that, that Yeoman did, but it's like most people don't even realize that that's what he, <laughs> he created when they, when they talk about him. And so um, I just thought we would have a bit of a discussion about why, the, why that, the, this idea of, of, of a scale of permanence or the different variables that come into making a property design why there's a hierarchy and why that hierarchy makes sense. Boy, we've got another five hours to go. <laughs> well, just, you know, some of the things I'll touch on, it starts with like climate. Although in mass human beings are influencing the composition of the atmosphere, um, uh, you or I individually, we can't change the climate of where we're at. It's doing this, it's done this for a long period of time. There's these instabilities thrown into it. We can expect this range of norms. We're not gonna get something way over here, way something way over there. You go to Phoenix, Arizona, you're not gonna get it to succeed trying to plant a Brazilian tropical rainforest. Yeah. You wanna mimic something that's been historically contextually working there. Uh, so, so that's climate. And that's one of the things we have to adapt to it. Yeah. Then it goes through the various different other hierarchical uh, systems that we have a little bit more control over, a little bit more control over, and we can start to change them 
start to change them. All of a sudden we have something that's totally plastics, totally malleable, and we can change it like that. And that's the soil. And it blows my mind that in the whole organic world, I've been a you know certified organic grower for 26 years. My parents were, you know, organic gardeners and farmers. Um, <clears throat> it's all about soil. Soil, 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 soil. Even the whole regenerative craze that's going on now. Oh, carbon in the soil. Well, it's not all about carbon. It's, you know, soil we can change almost overnight. Yeah. So let's get everything established first. And now let's tweak the soil because we can do that for the rest of our lives. And if you don't believe me that soil is kind of irrelevant, this is a heresy now, I'm sounding like a hydroponics guy. Um, in order to grow plants that are adapted to a particular site, let's say a cliff, where's the soil? Who dug the $40 hole for the $10 tree? Who did site preparation for three years with cover crops and manure and mulch on this cliff on the side of the road? Nobody. There's trees growing out of that cliff on the side of the road. Even soil scientists and um, in uh, horticulture orchardists and stuff like that, the, if, if you read the literature over and over again, they all zero in into the fact that a tree can actually get about 80% of its uh, nutrition from the environment as it is. It's like, wait a minute, the tree's alive. It's getting 100% of it. This tree grown out of a rock, it's getting 100% of what it needs out of that rock. Well, now we can go to that rock and spend the rest of our lives tweaking the soil in that crack. And that tree will go better, grow faster, have higher yields. Great, good for you. But it will grow there all by itself with sheer total utter neglect. Yeah. So that, that's, that's kind of like the spectrum of things that we can't change and things that we can change just like that. So that's why water was first on my first book for the for the minis within restoration agriculture because it's the one that you're going to have to take a long-term view on this we're changing the hydrology for a long time to come yeah absolutely and and i mean so like the the, the kind of core principle behind that like you mentioned is the hierarchy of things that we have um you know the least amount of change but that also affect us the most right down, down through these different factors where we have the most amount of change and they have the least amount of, of effect on us um, and because in coming back to this, you actually read this in your, uh, wrote this in your book, uh, the, the serenity prayer, which is, you know, give me the, <laughs> the, the courage to accept the things I cannot change, the, the strength to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. It's like, that's, that's why we want to do that. Or there's another, um, I'm sure you've, you've heard of, uh, um, Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective sure. People. It's like one of those is what's the circle of influence versus the circle of concern. And because there's, there's things that, yeah, they really affect you, like the weather. That's all farmers talk about is the weather, but we have no effect or very little effect over it. And so don't worry about it. We have to adapt right. to it, like you said. But, it, it, but then instead, everybody, they talk all day long about the weather and the soil. <laughs> and they kind of miss everything in between, uh, which is where I think most of the, the benefit from com can come from. Um, so I, I agree with you. Whenever I show that... Um, that scale of permanence model at at, uh, at courses or conferences, I get a lot of flack from other, uh, you know, PhD soil experts in the class that are just they're just livid. Yeah. <laughs> and I would put soil at the bottom, and it's. And and let's go let's go to the whole regenerative side on the soil scientists. It's yeah. all about increasing the soil organic matter, right? It's like, no, it's not. Let's let's put you on a river bottom, perhaps in Alberta where there's been this organic matter de deposited by floods for a zillion years, you got plenty of organic matter, 
but what's being deposited came from these mountains or hills over here and there are some serious elements that are missing and since you're in a floodplain especially the leachable elements calcium sulfur and so on that they're gone almost virtually gone mm. so to increase the organic matter is barely going to help you at all uh take like peat or muck soils that's even more extreme they're 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 at site saturation for carbon if you want to get real carbon capture now on that site don't add more carbon to the soil add more minerals to the soil but this once again it's that narrow-minded thinking of this one true answer just addresses everything your site is different than a muck soil in central michigan which is different than where i was just at on a, a high plateau a desert plateau in colorado each one of them we have a pattern that we follow a hierarchy and a and a and an order of operations but the details of how we address their particular circumstances are custom designed. Michigan, Alberta, Colorado, custom designed, absolutely, totally unique for each site. Absolutely. Well, and, and the other piece that I, I um, people often miss. So I was at an organic, um, I think it was organic Alberta conference and, and one of the presenters, he was talking about this, uh, you know, re regenerative agricultural certification that they're trying to bring about now as, as the kind of new gold standard and, and you know how it's it's all going to be all um, metric based as opposed to practice based and, and or outcome based as opposed to practice based and things like that. And um, uh, but the I think I, I asked them I was like well why don't we just start you know measuring as opposed to measuring the soil and like focusing on that it's like what if we what if we started measuring the nutrient density in the food. Yeah, but not necessarily because then what you could do with the nutrient density on the food, you grow hydroponic and you do all kinds of foliar applications. So the nutrients are in the food, not in the soil. I would like to go to more of what Will uh, Harris is doing in White Oak Pastures is, is overall ecosystem function. Yeah. Wherever, wherever you're located, what is an optimal ecosystem function? What does that ecosystem do in Alberta to yeah. you know, Manitoba to Florida? then if we can go ahead and approach ecosystem optimization based on our eco region, eco's overall ecosystem function is what I would want to have as a metric. And then I'd also flip it around. It's like the producer, no, no, no. The days of us paying for certification are over. <laughs> it's time. If you want to sell fuzzy jackets for way too much money to people who want to wear purple when they're wandering around in the hillsides, cool. You pay for the certification that verifies that I'm doing this. And if you're the certification agency that's now a police Gestapo force that comes on and rifles through my records this thick every year, and it's somebody who's like 25, 26 years old who has no experience in agriculture at all, and is harassing me about my organic operation I've been doing for 26 years. If you wanna be a policeman in my place, you pay for it. So if we have the, the products sales companies paying for the certification because they want to be certified this and then the certifier themselves maybe they're getting paid by the you know the jacket manufacturer or whatever it is at the time for the farmer to pay for more stuff is over totally i i, I agree and and I, I also agree with your um the, the nutrient density isn't isn't the whole whole piece uh, absolutely but the, the the point i was trying to make there is is i i, I mentioned this nutrient density piece is like like why are we why are we measuring um, the you know the, the like the thing that that doesn't matter um, in terms of like how much carbon's in the soil and things like that these these seemingly um, 
like there, there's, there's like there's lead measures and there's lag measures, and and everybody's focused on, um, uh, on you know like soil carbon and stuff like that. But they're they're missing the bigger picture, like eco overall ecosystem function, the health of the water cycle, uh, you know biodiversity and things like that. But right. the with the nutrient density piece, what I found was really interesting. When I mentioned to this this guy, is he said, "Oh no, we 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 can't do that. We can't measure the nutrient density of our food." because it, it could start to put certain producers at a disadvantage because <laughs> I, know, I couldn't believe he said this because what, what if on your farm, you have the best soil for growing carrots and you can grow amazingly, you know, delicious, nutritious carrots. But on my farm, I don't have good soils for growing carrots. That would put me at a disadvantage. And I, it blew my mind. It was like, then maybe you shouldn't be growing carrots. <laughs> but it's just like, it had never, no, no, we, we have to be able to grow corn and soybeans everywhere in the world. And, and that's it. It's just, I, I, I don't, and plus I'll, I, I totally agree with all the other points about the insanity of the current certification and everything else is. So let, let's go to a wild area somewhere. Most people know some sort of wild area that's almost, you know, quote unquote wilderness and stuff. You've got these natural plant community types that we human beings don't mess with. Yes. Walk through this section of wherever it is, whether it's, you know, grassland or wooded, et cetera, or even partially in between. You're walking along. It's like, oh, the vegetation is different here for some reason. Yeah. I don't necessarily know why. So in nature, it custom designs itself. There are salt marshes where stuff really thrives. And so what is a really stupid idea long-term, and it takes a lot of cost, energy and effort and machinery, is to go ahead and dike it off, pump it out, drain the soils with a pump station to get all that salt water out of there, flush it with new irrigation water that comes in, and then you plant a corn that's not a, a crop that's not adapted to it. Why not grow what is adapted to that site? And then you have the best site for whatever it is. Yeah. Well, doggone it, you have the best stuff around. You have the best carrots around because that is the best carrot site. Exactly. I might have the best some other kind of site. Yeah. And we can yeah. do it all at scale yeah. because this is a continent. This is a large continent. We can do it at scale. And all of our markets are currently at scale. You know, people don't buy food at a farmer's market. They, it's for social. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a cultural event. And they'll yeah. buy onesie twosies here and there. The people who are buying food are wallowing through the Walmarts and Costco's of this world, just lobbing things in the basket. That's food. So those of us who want to actually produce food for humans, we now aggregate our product. It goes to some particular location and then it gets distributed to where people are buying food. It's at scale. We can be custom designed based on what our piece of property will support and do the best yeah. uh, and still have you know, access to all these markets. Yeah, we've got to change our thinking and and how we uh, roll it out on the ground. Yeah, well, and I think that that that's a really great summary of why you know soil is. Uh, I don't know if what what Yeoman's logic for for why soil was on the bottom, but uh, in terms of why it's on the bottom for me of that that hierarchy, the scale of permanence is um, uh, is for all the reasons we just discussed. Yeah. And so the, one of the things I'll just I'll throw out there is, is um, so we, we actually changed um, in, in the book that we just wrote, we, we changed the, um, the order and we also changed kind of what elements were, were part of it, uh, of the hierarchy. Um, and I'm, I'm not gonna go through that, but the, the name that we, we started calling it was the order of operations. And, uh, and one of the reasons we, we 
we like that name so much is uh, I'm, I'm sure you, you remember back uh, from you know high school algebra uh, the idea of, of pedmus or or bedmus you know there's there's an order of operations when you're doing algebra and if you don't get the order right if you don't go from you know parentheses exponents division multiplication addition subtraction if you don't go through it in that order you'll get the wrong answer and so um, when we talk about this this order of operations or the, the scale of permanence you know going through from you know, geography, climate, you know, water access structures, um, uh, uh, fencing, uh, flora, fauna, uh, business technology and soil is, is our uh, version of the, the hierarchy. Um, if you don't go through it in that order, you, you can end up with the, the kind of wrong answer at the end yeah. of it. I'd, I'd like to uh, uh, modify that, not change it at all. Yeah. That is a beautiful order on the design side. Once you hit the ground, there's a little bit different order of, of, of operations is that, you know, then we'll do this first, then second, then third, then fourth. Yes. So this order of operations on the ground fits within your design hierarchy of, of how you got that laid out. And that's the only little modification that I would add to it. So can you, can you, uh, can you uh, say that again? I, I, I misunderstood that. Well, the design side. Okay. Yeah. So uh, our basic, you know, restoration, agriculture, development, restorationag.com is yep. our, our design company that, that goes around and helps other farmers install systems like this. Yep. We have a, uh, it's three broad categories. Phase one is just an ecological assessment to go there and just yep. check out the whole property on the ground as it actually is, not through computers and stuff like that, but what's actually going on. Yep. Uh, at that phase, what you just described is your order of operations. That is where your order of operations comes into play on our design phase. Well, then we go through water management, tree planting, and then it becomes on the ground technical management and assistance through time. But what your hierarchy at the design and planning phase, that is, that is. Um, absolutely. absolutely. And, and so like, like that, that hierarchy for, for our process, it, it fits in within, there's five stages. And the first is, um, you know, uh, goal setting, and then diagnosis, design, implementation, and then long-term monitoring. So absolutely, I, I totally agree. When you, when you get in that- so, Let's go to that, because I like that. Your five stage, well, we have a little simplified four stage. And <laughs> I came up with the acronym while I was trying to ingratiate myself before the Pennsylvania, uh, whatever the certification is, because I wanted to get invited to their 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 conference. Yeah. But it was PASA and um, uh, plan, act, seek feedback, adjust plan, act, seek feedback and adjust over and over. So it's the same thing as your five step, yeah. you know, just, just with uh, four letters instead of five. Well, well the, it was funny, like after, or I guess it was while we were writing the book and we'd been using the process for a while. Um, I can't remember how I found it, but there's, um, if you remember with the Sigma six manufacturing process. I'm not actually. Um, so I, I don't know much about it either, but somebody sent it to me or I was, I was looking something up. Uh, for like for processes or something and it's like it's almost identical that there's like a six stage yeah. process and it starts with this and it's you know broad setting is like have a goal um you know create some kind of a you know look look at what you already have design something new uh, build it but then there's like there's a like monitor it and then and then feedback and just go through right. it again and so like as, and then I started looking at all these other processes, and like uh, I thought we'd done this amazing new original thing. It's like <laughs> Twenty other guys that had done the same thing. It, and it's actually that's a summary because I had done the holistic management training yeah. way back before they split in the various different ways they split and all that. Yeah. And I grew up in a family of uh, <laughs> alcoholic, 
you know, drunk, alcoholic, born again, Amway salesman people. And so <laughs> if you can imagine a, a evangelistic Amway salesperson is, oh, I got to tell you about this new business. And you're always being hammered by these people. You got to come to the next meeting. So I did the holistic management training. It's like, oh, you got to come to the next meeting, make it to the next level. And I was like, I just got really wigged out because I didn't want to either go to the AA meetings or the Amway meetings. And so just like, look, what is the essence of what the whole holistic management framework is? It's plan, act, seek, feedback, and adjust. Yeah. Or like you've got it in five steps. Somebody else has it in six steps. It's the same thing. Yeah. Same pattern, different details. <laughs> totally. <clears throat> um, so the, I'd like to, to shift now and talk a bit about more about your property, because I think you have, to my knowledge, one of the largest and oldest permaculture properties in North America, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I, I know there's smaller, uh, smaller, older ones, but um, the, one of the things you mentioned in, in Water for Any Farm is that as a result of all the water harvesting and, and, and work you've done on your property, you now have four springs that run for, um, like you said, it was, you know, from late winter till, you know, midsummer. Right. And like, what are some of the other changes that you've seen on your farm that you, that you didn't expect that just that blow you away? Um, what I didn't expect, you know, I, I expected because, because we're imitating here uh, on the majority of the farm, we're imitating the Oak Savannah plant community type which is fagaceae, oak chest under beach, uh, cherries, uh, apples, hazelnut, you know, plums, grapes, currants, gooseberries, um, vines, uh, sh the shade tolerance of fungi and animals all around. So that, that's the target uh, ecosystem that we are going toward. And uh, we planted high density at first because I knew that there were going to be plants that just weren't adapted to here, used mostly seedlings, because I'm after population fitness over individual performance. Instead of finding this one apple tree that produces 85 million pounds of apples per tree, I want to have a population that survives pest, disease, ice storm, you know, wind, fire, you know, yeah, trample yeah. animals, all that kind of stuff. I want that population to be fit in this area. <laughs> and so I knew that removing material would be a significant part of the operation. And so I knew that I would, you know, become a, a woodcutter. You know, I was going to end up cutting lots of trees. And so I would cut trees, inoculate with mushrooms and decay that, uh, chip tops and stuff like that, or have livestock eat the leaves, then chip the tops, inoculate with mushroom spawn on the chips. Uh, so I knew that I was gonna be doing this through time, but the quantity and the volume of, of material that I'm cutting and removing is, is almost getting to the point where it's uh, unmanageable for one guy to take care of sling and chainsaw. Wow. So I didn't realize that I would turn from a cucumber farmer to a chainsaw slinger this fast. Wow. And currently right now, I'm guessing that I could be producing um, two to three tons of oyster mushroom alone every single year forever. Wow. And so and how, how long did that, how long did that transformation take place then? Um, it was about 10 years. Once I was 10 years in, I had hybrid poplar of a certain size. All of the framing in this building that you see right here is all material that, that I planted. Wow. The siding, these are off of pines. Notice they're small, they're not fat, right? Yeah. Well, when you plant these things thicker than flies on a roadkill, 
And then as they get too close to each other, you start to take out the lousy ones and leave the best ones behind. They'll grow better. And, and my big criteria was make sure that the grass was still growing underneath because I want that grass forage to be dense as can be so you don't see any dirt underneath. And so by removing all the, the hybrid poplars, they sprouted back. If you got 10 sprouts and if they grow to a foot in diameter in 10 years, you've got, you can take a tree out every single year. So after, uh, out of like the tens of thousands of hybrid poplars that are out here, I'd say, you know, maybe not even, not even 5,000, but just use that. It's a huge number for me to keep up with. I can't keep up with it. Yeah. Totally it's great. Right. I love it. I love it. That's, 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 that's crazy. We, um, on about 30 years ago, my, pl my parents planted like one of their first shelter belt trees of hybrid poplar. And, uh, and now, you know, fast forward for the last couple of years, we've heated like two homes with just like the trimmings right. <laughs> off of that one row of, of trees. It's, it truly is mind blowing the, the abundance that you can get. And if, and if I have an acre of ground, this is, this is what another thing. All right. So here's another thing in my system, because there literally are not all of nature is all cooperative. Everything's cooperative. No, it doesn't. There are competitive effects in yeah. nature and there are cooperative effects in nature. It's not either or uh, well, once you start to get competitive effects, you take out to release a different crop, whatever that might be, the grass, or how, as I just described with the, with the hybrid poplars. But because there are competitive effects and there, there are, uh, they are trying to get the same sunlight, the same or all that kind of stuff, I will get lower yields of each individual thing. Um, I have some of the lowest yields of hazelnuts of anybody in our grower group. Hmm. Well, that sucks, doesn't it? Now, would anybody go to a workshop that says, oh yeah, I'll show you how to get lower yields. You don't do it because it's like, forget that. Um, well, yeah, but wait, I get lower yields of hazelnuts and as a byproduct, I get oyster mushrooms, I get beef, um, I get sunflowers, you know, on and on and on. You just add up all these different things. And in restoration agriculture, the last color plate in the central section is a picture of my son long time ago with an acre of, he's in an acre of chestnuts, acre of sunflower, acre of green peppers, and an acre of, of acorn squash, all planted on the same acre. And I got half the yields, half the yield of, of chestnuts, half the yield of sunflowers, half the yield of peppers, half the yield of acorn squash, you got two total yields. Agroforesters call that the land equivalent ratio, that you may get less of this and less of that, but combined, it's a greater total yield. Yeah. And we don't know the total yield that we can get and what ends up being the limiting factor for me, I already mentioned it like with too many trees to cut. There's only so many things that a human being can wrap their brain around and actually take care of yeah. because it has to pay itself. It may not pay my whole salary when I'm out there trimming to release this tree to grow better and making mushrooms out of that may not be paying my hourly wage, but that combined with the beef combined with the wood combined with the on and on and on actually ends up at the end of the year to be enough. Yeah. And what do we really need? We really need enough. Let's take care of the economy because the dollar economy wants dollars. Give it to it. Well, now let's live a good life. Okay. And, and a lot of people just don't believe that that's possible. Yeah. And that, I think, is the biggest limiting factor of all is just people say that can't be true. Can't I, be true. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and this, is, this is one of the, uh, the most pervasive kind of myths in 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 farming um and uh you know in, in reading reading your 
books. I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, you despise it as much as I do is that there's this like, you know, if it doesn't suck, you're not doing it right. There's this like, or the, I was, I've made this joke before on, on the podcast, but you know, if, if, if there was an Olympics of martyrdom and farmers competed, they would lose on purpose. <laughs> and uh, I, I just, I don't get it. Like why, why don't you want to have a more enjoyable life and less work? Um, and so it's like, yeah, it might, with these perennial systems, it might be, you know, three years of just madness to manage these things. But once they're up and going, uh, I mean, this, this is the kind of holy grail permaculture, but you've, you've, you have proof of concept of this now uh, on, on your farm is, is that eventually the workload, um, I mean, like you're still doing work, but from, from what, from my, from on my own property, it doesn't feel like work. I guess it's, it's totally different versus what, when I grew up, I worked on the farm and it sucked. It's seasonal, yeah. you know, and, and it's, and it's limited because it is seasonal. You're taking care of these here and these here and these here and these here. And because I'm, I'm, um, almost always getting some sort of yield out of it. Uh, it's not like I got to get all the corn in or all the hay before the rain, whatever it is. It's like, I'm doing a little bit of this, a little bit of this. Now, count to a hundred thousand. I know how to do that, but that's a long way. And that's big, but I can count to 10 over and over and over and over and over again. So I'll count to 10, you know, a hundred times instead of count to a hundred, you know, thousand, it's just too much work. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting way of doing it. And, and again, having that diversity, it's like when, when one job starts to suck, you just go do something else. And then, or if it's raining one day and you can't be doing the one, you know, if you, you know, maybe you can't get into the fields to, to till, but you, you know, you'll go do something else. It's, um, uh, yeah, that they're having that diversity on farms is, is, uh, is absolutely essential for the profitability as well as just <laughs> peace of mind and, and quality of life. Um, one of the, um, the other things that I, uh, I wanted to touch on uh, with you is though your um, I, I was blown away by, by this. I never really thought about it because when I designed our farm out, uh, you know, I had access to LIDAR uh, topographical maps. It cost me like 1500 bucks and I, I had uh, you know, a $2,000 laser level. And, um, and I, you know, I still, it was, it was tough for me, but in, in the, the, your book, Water for Any Farm, you, you describe how, you designed your whole farm with, um, or, or, or I, don't know if you, I don't know if you used an A-frame. Did you use an A-frame right off the bat? A-frame from the, the first thing was an A-frame with yeah. a bolt on a string. Yeah. Like that's, that just blows me away is that like how, how um, like this doesn't have to be, anybody can do this. It was like, it was what I got. It's on any farm, adaptable any farm. And one of the things that I really would like to encourage people, I know both you and I, uh, some of our economic livelihood comes from helping others, and that involves yes. site maps. Yeah. Don't get hung up on the doggone site map. It's like soil. It's not that important. What's more important than the pretty picture is actually designing things on your ground, because there are there are variations in the in the landscape that lidar can't see. Yeah. And if you don't have a human mind and an ability to adapt to the situation as it actually is on the ground. You're just taking a picture and imposing it on reality. It's not going to work. So, you know, we, we will do like conceptuals at first, then we go put it in on the ground. Once it's installed, then you do an as built. That's, that's the proofed one, the ground proofed one. So yeah. 
if you're going to get hung up and it's got the map's going to be right, maps, 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 do it after you put the system in place on the ground because then it then it gives you information. It teaches you something. So yeah. It's, oh, now I know why it's always too wet over here. Now I know why it's too dry over here. <laughs> I'm always blown away at um, how how most permaculture properties, their original design looks better than the real thing. <laughs> like it's this beautiful watercolored, you know, multi-thousand dollar project. And then their, you know, their real site looks like a, you know, a junkyard. And um, if you go to New Forest Farm, you look up images of New Forest Farm, it's all over the internet, right? Yeah. That pattern right there. And then the, the drawings, the site map that we actually drew was done by myself four-year-old and a two-year-old with yeah. crayons and pencils on yeah. on like paper towels totally and that's the design yeah what's, and more my, my what's more important is the reality on the ground first that's the ecologically important thing and if you if you imitate your natural plant community types of where you are your your possibility of failure drops down to almost zero because this stuff is growing in the ditch on the side of the road it does just fine thank you very much yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that you just mentioned there that I, I wanted to um, go into a bit, if, if you're uh, if you're comfortable with it, is um, you know a, a lot of I'm sure you've heard the saying is um, the, the only way to make a living in permaculture is to teach, you know, or and it's it's it seems like that's the case in um, in regenerative agriculture or or any kind of farming stuff. Is it seems like all the the quote unquote big names are all involved in you know, consulting or public speaking or teaching classes and stuff like that. Um, and, um, and so I, I, I personally know dozens of farmers who are, who are making a very good living doing nothing other than farming. Um, but I, I just wanted to, to get your kind of thoughts on that because, um, you know, basically that, that's one of the, the kind of uh, wrenches that a lot of people try to throw in my spokes when I'm you know, talking about what we've done is like, yeah, but does it make any money? Well, um, that, and that's that's the biggest thing for me too. Is people say, "Oh yeah, but you know, Mark Shepard doesn't have an economic model because yeah. they don't want to hear it. They yeah. don't want to hear the fact that I said, okay, start before you ever buy this land with this pattern of how whatever money comes into your system, you put ten percent in a charitable contributions fund, you put ten percent into a tax payment and re uh, reinvestment fund, and you live on eighty percent of your net income starting today. They don't like that." Well, then once you get enough accumulated in your, your investment fund, then you use that as a down payment on a piece of property and you borrow money. Oh, horrors. And you design a system that allows you to pay back your debt service. That's called leverage. And then you do the work on the ground as a farmer and you may not make a lot of money, but all you have to do is make a plus one at the end of the year. That's called profitable. If you're paying your bills, making a plus one at the end of the year, the byproduct is extraordinarily good health and nutrition because you're getting good exercise, outdoors, fresh water, uh, and the best produce in the world because you're producing it. Um, and then you're producing all of your own heat, all of your own electricity. Uh, just take food, for example. If See this line behind my head here? If that's that zero line, most people, to them, food is an expense. All I have to do is get you up here where you're... you're this little bit of a surplus. And if I've replaced all that, your gain is huge. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're trying to do this 
and make all kinds of dollars. I want to make $50 million and all that kind of stuff. Yet still have all these expense holes in it. Um, that's ridiculous. So by making a, a, a modest, um, honest livelihood and eliminating these expenses uh, right over here, you, you can't hear the hum right now, thank goodness, is all the uh, all of the electronics for running the wind turbine. You know, I've been producing my eye, you know, whatever. This site, when you buy a site, buy a degraded site, nobody wants it. It's a piece of junk land. It's the same thing below zero. It's below economic value. And then by farming it and getting lower than normal yields, you make a plus one on it. That gain, people like to buy a piece of property like this and they want to make that gain. You can't because it's already a good property. It's already a beautiful property, whatever. I can take a piece of crap property and the big gain for me is the long-term asset value of the property. This property first cost $40,000 26, seven years ago. Uh, the last appraisal came through of um, $560,000. Do the math on that MF and have, and have the agriculture itself is paying for the work to turn that asset from this to this. That was the real gain over time. And people don't like to hear that. Well, then marketing your product. Oh, join with others. <gasps> now we have to talk to each other. We have to make decisions in common. And if your team makes the majority decision and I have to abide by it, people like tend to walk. Well, no, if we're all in this together, I have to swallow my pride. I'm not the smartest tool in the box. I'm not the most brilliant. I don't have the best tech. And you guys say that that's the direction you want to go. I think it's a foolish decision, but we're all in this together. I'm with you. So they don't like the fact that you have to actually be frugal with your finances. They don't like the fact that you actually have to be prudent and save money. They don't like the fact that I say, go ahead and borrow money. It's okay. And then they don't like the fact that, that you have to like do what nature says instead of what you want. And then they don't like the fact that you have to get along with others. Tell me there's no economic model in there. Absolutely. It, yeah, it, it, it is, it is mind blowing. And, and um, yeah, like the, the, the fact that it takes, you know, you know, decades for, uh, or in some case decades to, to pay off some of that debt before you are like, you know, my family and I, we're now, we, we don't have any more debt. And, and like, we've just seen a, a massive change in the quality of our life in terms right. of, <laughs> um, but like, I, we, we never, we, it was never kind of part of our, our conscious plan or whatever, but now that it's there, it's like, like this land is paid for and it's, it's going to be stay in our family um, for as long as possible. It's like, I can't imagine the leg up that this is going to give future generations. And so it's like thinking on it on too, too short of a time scale is another big problem. It's like, yeah, we might have to, you know, work a little bit harder in, in this life, but um, for sure you can reach it in one life lifetime. My parents did, and, and they did it with six kids and we didn't, they didn't know what the hell they were doing in the early years. It wasn't internet or anything else. And, but, well, we did it and and that was during uh they were paying like 15 percent interest uh some Ooh. of the years in the early yeah. when they bought the farm so it, it absolutely is it is possible and uh um so the before we before we close out here mark i would i would love to hear about some of the other projects that you've got um kind of uh that you're working on right now i know you do a ton of you know uh restoration work all around the world. Could you just take a few minutes to talk about some of the really exciting projects that you've got 
uh, either in the works or that you've just finished up that you're starting to see good results on? Um, well, uh, <laughs> most of the projects I'm seeing good results. Now you also think if, if you know, my and, and you know, the company Restoration Agriculture Development, the overall target is a rehabilitated ecosystem mimic that produces food, fuels, medicines, fibers, and it pays its own way. Yeah. And it's a, it's a complex model. Well, now any individual, when they see this whole complexity, our job is to represent this ecological whole. Well, then they can pick and choose what parts of it they want to pick and choose. And then uh, probably the people who have the most problems are the ones that got into the prescription basis. And, you know, they think that this is a prescription yeah. and it's the one true answer. Uh, so, you know, those aside, um, everybody's got, you know, a really great handle on parts of this ecosystem whole. Um, working in Africa, uh, East Africa, Tanzania, if I think it's mainsprings.org or mainspring.org, uh, working with um, uh, uh, orphanages and orphanages and schools, within four years, they're food self-reliant. When this whole COVID thing, I just left, um, you know, I, I taught a course at that particular, the first campus we did. Um, when COVID came, they just shut the gates and they were fine. <laughs> cool, huh? And that's really cool. Wow. And, um, so that, you know, that, that's some of the stuff doing around the world. Well, then for individuals and, uh, you know, investors in the, in the U.S. and Canada, um, working every place from Colorado, there's a high mountain plateau, which is really amazing, that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they dug a irrigation ditch from a river to the top of this plateau you know, to the top edge of the plateau, 15 miles with hand tools and horses. Um, wow. And it took them like six, seven, eight years to dig this ditch. Well, then this irrigation ditch goes across. The, the irrigation uh, management is run by a cooperative that every landowner on this plateau has to be a member of this cooperative. Uh, and then everybody gets an allotment. Here's this much water. And so when they turn on the ditch in the springtime, here it comes. You've got water coming through there every single day for a hundred years. Um, you know what the biggest problem is on that plateau? Three inches of rain, only this much rain in the course of a year. So not, it was a desert. It was a complete desert. You know what the biggest problem is right now? Water erosion? Swamps. Swamps. <laughs> because this water soaked in on the head ditch alone has been a hundred years of, of sub-irrigating this whole plateau and it hits an obstruction, now it starts to come out. They've got springs all over the place. And you, you're ready for this? You know what one of the strategies is in dealing with this? And we've got some folks that are, that are starting on that process there. Fish. Wow. Fish, you have so much water. They have the equivalent of 45 inches of rain a year. They can't use it fast enough. Wow. It's a beautiful temperate climate, similar to similar climate as Oklahoma, uh, not Oklahoma, but Missouri, but no rain. It's all sub-irrigated for a hundred years. That's one site. And then working in um, upstate New York with uh, Cranmore Advisors, I think it's C-R-A-N-M-O-O-R, two N's maybe in there, Cranmore Advisors. Um, they are uh, purchasing properties in an area and doing a conversion to perennial woody crops and livestock. Uh, as an investment, you know, legit investment for, you know, investment funds and, and individuals and stuff like that. And the, the goal there is to get a, uh, a concentration of 
the various different woody crops that are appropriate for that region. So now what that does is you have enough product to drive the processing, to drive the value added, and all of that along the way. Each one of those is an investment, you know, has, has great investment potential. And if you think about a perennial crop, I'll compare it to what happened in, in New York State. This is part of it. Chobani yogurt kind of kept the dairy industry alive. It like gave it a new shot of, of oomph and sales just skyrocketed. They went, you know, almost international. And so that was basically what this particular region in New York was all dairy farms supplying Chobani. Well, pretty soon the state of California gave Chobani the company a really sweet deal. Plus they can get milk out of mega CAFOs at a lower price. Chobani's business model makes more sense in California. They like right away, instantly, quick decision, you know, cut the knees off of everybody and they bailed and they went to California. So there's this huge collapse in, in the value of, of agricultural land and, and incredible economic hardship. If we plant perennial ecosystems that are adapted to that place, good luck moving that perennial ecosystem to California because it doesn't belong in California. It belongs in New York state. So the goal is to create an economy that is now based on the actual ecology of the actual place and is actually adapted with the genetics and everything like that and hits the mass market of what's that little town down the end of the Hudson River, New York something. Yeah, New York, New York. There's a massive markets to feed with a perennial ecology. And so this is actual true ecological rural economic development that they're working on. So, and then everything in between. The homesteader, the you know, the the quote unquote orchardist and the hobby farmer, all of that. That's insane. So if you had to guess, and maybe you know the number, a lot of fun. How many, uh, how many acres do you think are under your influence right now? Whether whether kind of you know directly involved in your projects or or people who have contacted you and said, you know, Mark, I've read your books, I've 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 watched all YouTube videos and I've I've done it's working my farm. How many acres do you think? Uh, worldwide you'd have uh, I, I don't really know you know we've tried a couple different times to add it all up but we're too busy that we don't have time to sit there and you know add our things up patch, patch you know, your backs. yeah you know <laughs> but, but but personally you know my own self i'm i'm personally managing um uh five six seven eight nine properties in three different states right here me myself and i it's easy wow. it's permaculture it's a, it's a perennial ecosystem all i got to do is go in and harvest every once in a while and by harvesting i'm steering the system where i want it to go and then there was at least one project that i did it was a you know a, a larger grazing operation about ten thousand acres and so i did hundreds of sites with you know i don't know if we and that's what we were trying to look is did we hit a million yet i don't know and, and actually, let's cut it off real quick because I've been drinking water for an hour and a half. <laughs> what happens to that? That's, that's a good place to end it. We started <laughs> with water and it's going to end with water. <laughs> <laughs> right on through. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the pattern once again. Yeah. You know, it, it goes in it, all your kidneys, your liver, all these dendritic patterns. Let's capture this resource, bring it through, then distribute it again. Yeah, and and if if I if I know you, it's it's not going to go into some lake or river system or a, a chemical treatment plant. It's going to go and make more trees. And okay. all right, so thanks for your time, Dakota. I really appreciate this. This is oh, great. Thank you for taking the time, Mark. 